Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Church, it's good to again gather together under the preaching of God's word. Thanks to Isaac and the team for leading us in worship. And uh, praise God as well for Conrad last week for leading us through God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Well, tonight we find ourselves in same chapter, chapter 4, and we'll start our reading from verse 14 till verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read from verses 14 to 21. And verse 14 reads, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray together to our God. We come before your throne of grace this evening, O God, just even remembering your death on that cross. We remember your death, your burial and resurrection in this service this evening, and we remember that it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ's finished work that we can be called the children of God. We are grateful that we can call God our Father. We are grateful that we can come into His throne of grace and make our requests known. And we are grateful that we have also been trusted with this gospel as ambassadors of Christ. So God, as we go through this message and as we consider our own ministry for you, I pray, God, that you convict our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts for where we have failed you, And would lead us to a place where we will be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the many examples that you've given us in your word. And God, even in the church, Lord, men and women whom we can follow as they follow after you. So help us, God, to consider this evening, Lord, not only our speech, but also our manner of life. Use me, God, as a vessel as I proclaim your word. I pray, Father, that you would cleanse me first, and Lord, help me to speak only that which is true of your word. And I do pray, Father, that you would bless our time together. As you've blessed our time together in worship, bless us as we continue to worship through the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Who did it? Do you remember those words? Growing up, the doors kicked down. Who did it? Did it. 
When I wrote this down, I must say I got a bit of a PTSD. I remembered those words very clearly, and I remembered the smack that I remembered. But anyway, I remembered a specific occasion when my brother and I were left alone whilst my mom went to work at night. Now, as I've said before, if you listen to my sermons, you'll know our life history. So my mom would leave us alone with my brother as she would go to work at night, and this is what she would say. She would say, especially when she's working on weekends, keep the house the way that I left it. Don't break anything. And the last command was, don't let your friends come and play in the house. If you listen, I'll buy you something nice to eat. And on Saturday, you guys can go to the park or go play at the game store. I love you, boys. See you tomorrow. (laughs) What do you think my brother and I did? (laughs) Well, we walked to the balcony. We watched her walk out our building. We waved goodbye. We saw her get into the bus, and we called our friends. We called our our friends to come and play, but can you guess what game we played? (laughs) We played cricket. Probably the worst sport to play indoors. <laughs> but, 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 listen, listen. We had a bat and we had a sponge ball. Sponge ball won't break anything, surely. Well, we played. We dived on the couches like A.B. de Villiers or Herschel Gibbs or um, John T. Rhodes. We hit the ball for sixes. We hit the ball for fours. Till it was the dying embers of the game. It was in the heat of the moment. I was chasing a high score. I swung the bat. I hit the TV. (laughs) But it didn't break. So let's continue to play. We played some more. I swung. I hit a couple of fours. Now it's tight. Few balls remaining. And then the ball came. I swung the bat. It was a sick. Nope, it hit the chandelier. Two sheets of the glass fell to the ground and shattered into pieces. Now, as boys, we are very creative and we think on our toes. So, we quickly, in haste, we got the pieces, we cleaned everything up, we rearranged the chandelier so that my mom could miss the fact that there were two pieces that were broken. Mom came back the next morning. We were sleeping in our beds. We were sleeping in our beds. I mean, we saw her walk in because we couldn't sleep the whole day. She changed her uniform. She made herself some breakfast. All this felt like an hour. She calmly came to the bedroom and she sat on her bed. My brother and I whispered to ourselves, she missed it. And then as she sat on the bed, we heard, boys! Get up! And we got a stern warning and, of course, a very good hiding. Now, this story is to share something a little of what the Apostle Paul had left with the church at Corinth. He had left them some instructions of of ways for them to live in a manner that would be glorifying to God. But we'll later see that they didn't follow these steps. So the first thing I'd like us to notice tonight is relationships are the breeding ground for admonishing. For admonishing. Relationships are the breeding ground for admonishing or to admonishing. 
Now I think about it. Verse 14 says this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So just if, just if my brother and I heeded to the words of my mother, just if we saw the smoke, me hitting the TV and put out the fire, we would have saved the chandelier and we would have saved our rear ends from a hiding. But we were caught up. We were caught up in the moment. We were caught up in something that we knew very well we should not have been doing. Likewise, Paul is writing to a church that is caught up. They were caught up in what they knew they shouldn't be doing. They were caught up in pride, pride that brought division and stifled their growth. Factionalism, quarrels, love of human wisdom, cultural drifts, and pride characterized the church at Corinth. None of these are characteristics of a Christ-centered church. We heard last week, as Conrad preached, that they were stuffed up in their pride. Paul said, um, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would, you, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So rather than living as servants of God, they lived to serve themselves. So Paul sought to admonish his beloved children in Corinth. Now, his, his admonishing of the church was not to bring them to shame, but to repentance. It was to bring them back to the path of righteousness. The word admonishing means to warn. It means to caution. It means to gently reprove, exhort. It literally means to place in the mind and so to warn or to give notice to beforehand, especially of danger or evil, by reasoning with them. It is the same word that is symbolized by you warning someone who is swimming by a beach and you see a shark approaching them. What do you say? Shark, shark, shark. No, you shout, shark, shark, swim to shore. Hey, shark, swim to shore. Move away from the danger. Likewise, to admonish someone is to call them away from sin. It is to gently reprove them, warn them, caution them of the dangers of sin and lead them back to shore, lead them back to the truths of God's word. But how did the Apostle Paul do this? He did this, or why? He did this because he loved the church as a father loved his children. You see, true biblical love cannot stand to see image bearers live in disobedience to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 15 says this, It is the love of God, for the love of God controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, true biblical love also cannot stand to see believers living in disobedience to their father. Revelation 3 verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. 
Matthew 18 verse 15 says, If your brother sins, go, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, praise the Lord, for you have gained your brother. As I prepped this, I prayed, and I pray that we would see more of this in the church here at Central. I'm not saying that because I'm, I know of people who are living in sin, but I know that sin exists among us. And I hope that we can create a culture in, among, in and amongst us that we are not comfortable when you see fellow believers living in their sin. If we say we love Central, we mean that we love the people that God has entrusted to our community. And if I love my brother or my sister in Christ and I see them caught up in sin, I cannot sit back and say, well, that's not my business. I will rebuke them in love and in grace to win them back to Christ. And so as a father, Paul knew his responsibility to bring the church back to the fear of God and away from the fear of man. He knew his responsibility to bring the church back to the worship of God and away from idolatry driven in pride, back to unity and away from quarrels and factionalism. But it must be said, his motive was always their repentance and restoration. He did not do it to lift himself up or to embarrass them or, I'm going to put them in their place. For, every Christ, for, for even Christian discipline can be provocative and abusive in ways that leave permanent scars. Many people have been scarred by the church by the abusive use of discipline in the name of church discipline. They are often put down with criticism and punishment, but are seldom lifted up with admonition and encouragement. A commentator said effective spiritual leadership aggressively confronts sin and provides just the right balance of nurture and discipline for the need of the moment to achieve the desired change in behavior. This was seen in Paul, as we'll see in our next point, the power of example. The power of example. See this in verses 15 to 17. 15 reads, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ just through, uh, sorry, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. We are familiar with phrases like, practice what you preach, or do as I do, or walk the talk. We have people who look to be our guides. I mean, I thought a little bit, and I was like, hey, if you consider social media, what happens on social media? You follow people, or you subscribe to their content, which means you believe that their content is worth following. And so we have influencers, we have motivational speakers, we have coaches, we have talk show hosts, we have friends, we have uh, teachers, we have TV, and so much more people who are looking to be your guides. Likewise, in the church, we also get Sunday school teachers, we get youth leaders, we get Bible study leaders, we get mentors, we get accountability partners. You name it, we probably have it. But the word for countless guides is the word um, myriads, which literally means ten thousands. 
Paul uses hyperbole to stress the point that many will want to be your guides or your tutors, but you will only have one father. The word for guides that Paul uses the Greek word paedagogos, and which was a slave, uh, which was a term given to a slave who was given the responsibility of moral guardianship of a child. He would take the child to school. He would walk the child back from school. He would try to guide the child in matters, in moral matters. He would try to help the child in decision making. Now, even as we think about this concept and as we go on in the sermon, there's an opportunity that I want to clarify. Paul in this passage is not sharing with us the results of his paternity test that he is the spiritual father of the church at Corinth so that they could call him Papa Paul. (laughs) That was not the point. The point was not so that they could call him and lift him up to the office of father. (laughs) No. He was not longing for the title of father, but his intention was to explain his role in their spiritual life. And to describe his love for those under his care. And to claim some amount of responsibility and authority in their lives. In the same sense, we all are to be spiritual fathers. I know that gets a bit weird because there are women as well in the room. But if you listen carefully, you'll get the point. We are to be sharing the gospel. We are to be making disciples of all the nations. And as people come to faith in Christ Jesus, then you come, you become their spiritual father. Paul has already protected us from falsely thinking that as a spiritual father, we are the ones who are actually responsible for the person coming to faith. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the increase. Now to get this right, you need to think about the process of conception. See, it is the father who is the one who carries the seed, who deposits, who deposits his seed to meet the embryo, to form a child in the womb of the mother. Now, I know someone is saying, this, like, okay, where are we going with this? This just got interesting. But I want you to listen carefully. We know that it takes a man and a woman to create a child. And if God does not provide the increase, no child will be born. Many of us know or have heard of the process of trusting in God to provide a child in his due time because we know that the birds and the bees does not always equal a child being born. Likewise, sharing the gospel to someone does not always mean a soul being saved unless God brings a child, unless God brings a dead soul to life through the regenerating ministry of the Spirit, the gospel will not fall on good soil. Do we get it? MacArthur helps us to clarify this point. He says, Paul is saying, yes, Christ is the power Yes, the gospel or the word of truth is the instrument, but I have been the agent that God has used. I therefore sense toward you a tremendous degree of spiritual responsibility. 
God does do the saving, and God does have the word of God as the instrument. But God does use the human agent. God has chosen not only redeeming man through his power and his word, but human agents. So you and I are part of that process. So this is important because Jesus also warns us that we should not go around calling people on the earth as father. Matthew 23 verse 9 to 12 says this, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is Paul's point. You have many guides. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, if, if you don't find the guides, the guides will find you. But you only have one heavenly father and you only have one spiritual father, only one person who can call you a child whom he loves. And it is he who shared the gospel that brought your dead soul to life. Do you remember who that person was? Even better, do you remember the last person you fathered in the faith? Who was the last person that you shared the gospel to? Paul says, as your father in the faith, therefore be imitators of me. See, I shared the gospel to you, and the gospel that I shared to you is the gospel that I believe. I am calling you to live the life that I now live in the faith I lived Uh, that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul could say, follow me, because he was following after Jesus. His life, don't get me wrong, was not perfect. Or he's not saying here that his sanctification was completed whilst he was on earth. But he was saying that my life shows the fruit. It shows my pursuit of obedience to loving God and loving my neighbor. So therefore, follow me as I follow after Christ. The Hebrew writer writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. An author said, discipling isn't just teaching principles. It isn't just applying principles. It's living principles in front of those people, and, you con- and your consistent life will become a rebuke in itself. So leaders, if those under you followed your way of life, would they be closer to Jesus or closer to the world? Christian, the person that you led to Christ, if they watched your manner of life, would they be able to pick up the basics of the faith from the way you live out your faith? Or would they, would they look more like Jesus from your godly example? Or would they look more like the world because you live a life of compromise and hypocrisy? Our children watch and imitate the things we say and do. So if we imitate the Lord, they'll imitate him too. Those are the words by Spur. 
So the call to spiritual fatherhood is to produce offspring. It is to teach them. It is to warn them. It is to model to them the way of Christ. But if you want to do this well, it it must be rooted in the love of the Father. That the love that the Father has shown to us. He loved us so much that whilst we were still sinners, He sent His only begotten Son to die for us. It was this gospel that shaped the way that the Apostle Paul loved people. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Elders, I want to point this to you. May we be gladly willing to be spent, sorry, to spend and be spent for the souls of those that God has placed under our care. Believers, May you be willing to gladly, to gladly spend and be spent for the souls that God has sent you to encourage, to exhort, to lead to Christ-likeness. That's why Paul sent Timothy. Paul sent Timothy because Timothy was a faithful imitator of Paul. He says, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. To, sorry, he says, I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Why? To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul's conduct was Christ-like. And he has been an instrument by which God has made to make Timothy's conduct equally Christ-like. So the presence of Timothy would be similar to the presence of Paul because they were both exemplifying the life of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you have a heart for the campus? Do you have a heart for hospitals? Do you have a heart for schools? Do you have a heart for the government? Do you have a heart for lawyers? Do you have a heart for sportsmen? Whatever it is, do you have a heart for people? Well, you don't have to be there personally if God has not called you there in terms of going to reach the gospel or go to reach these people with the gospel. You don't have to be there personally if God has not called you there, but you can invest in the life of someone who's already there or someone who you can send there as your spiritual child to do what? To share to the peoples of your ways in Christ as you teach them everywhere and in every church. I love what John MacArthur said. He puts it this way. He says, the best way to be an effective minister is not to get a high-powered car, a handful of airplane tickets, and to keep going and go all over the place and minister to everybody. The best place to minister is probably to stay in one place. Build spiritual children then can, who then can go everywhere with the ministry. And they can, in a sense, be you, be Jesus, because the principles are the same for everybody wherever they go. Paul taught the principles and he lived them. And watch, thirdly, he reproduced them in somebody else. There is the Christian life. There is how to make a disciple. Teach it, live it, and reproduce it. Now I must close, so my last point. 
the importance of discipline. The importance of discipline. And maybe even to clarify my last statement, I'm not saying don't go when God sends you. But I am saying that you also can bring up somebody who can be sent by God. So the last point, the importance of discipline. Verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will, f- and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant, puffed-up people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You see, in pride, the, the church thought that the Apostle Paul would not come. They, they were convinced that the Apostle Paul will not show his face. He is afraid of us. We don't need him. We have Apollos. We have Cephas. Some are even saying, we have Christ. We've got this. You see, the thing about pride is it takes us up, up, and soon enough we'll be away. You see, you are floating with a big head in the sky, ignoring a truth that we know very well, that what goes up must come down. So Paul's response is, I'm coming. If the Lord wills, I, I'm coming to find all who are arrogant. And the word for arrogant here is that word puffed up. Paul is literally saying, I am coming to find all who are puffed up and I will burst their bubble. He says, um, he, says he, will not, sorry, he will not be looking to find out their talk, but their power. Church, I must say that it, it is a fallacy. It's a fallacy for us to believe that it is, it is loving to turn a blind eye to sin and to those who are living in habitual sin. No. Jude says in Jude verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Listen to verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When we are in a position to stop evil, we must do so, even if it is costly. The church and others often suffer much because people who know better refuse to do anything to stop gossip and worse sins. Let us not take part in such an evil. Let us ask the Lord to give us the courage to stop wrongdoing when we have the ability to do so. Those again were words by a commentator. So, put your money where your mouth is. Don't tell me about your power. Show me your power. If we started from verses chapter 1 to chapter 3, we'll, we'll see where Paul, Paul has actually been establishing this idea of, of word and power. Do you remember that the people in Corinth were intoxicated by the wisdom of the word, but they were, but, but were in that way emptying it of the power of the cross? We see this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17. 
Again, they were looking for word. They were showing off with eloquence and lofty speech because that was more important than the gospel. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. They sought more the man than they sought the message. We saw this in chapter 3, in fact, most of chapter 3. See, Paul has already shown the church that the church was more important in, in the man. They were more important in lofty speech, in eloquence, than they were interested in the power of the gospel to save souls. He was not interested in all of this. He was interested to see the power. He was interested in one thing. What power do they have? Has the power of the gospel been seen in the people who have had their sins forgiven? Can we see the gospel that lives have been transformed? Is there evidence of men and women who have been called out of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light? Is there evidence of this? Paul's argument is that mere talk and lofty words will not change people, for only the gospel can change people. So this is what Paul means when he says, I will find out not the power of these arrogant, puffed-up people, sorry, I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant, puffed-up people, but their power. Paul is going to ask for their credentials. What people has your lofty speech or your eloquence genuinely transformed by bringing them into the knowledge of our Savior? D.A. Carson says he is going to expose them for the empty religious windbags that they are. What will come from this test being done in your life, O believer? Are you guilty of also talking big talk, of getting caught up in eloquent speech, in lofty speech with no power, using eloquence, bearing no fruit to the glory of yourself? Or have you been faithfully trusting in the power of the gospel to save souls? So remember the words of my mother? If you obey, you will be rewarded. But if you disobey, you must be ready to face the consequences, the choice is yours. Paul asked the church the same thing. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the power of gentleness? So to close, does your life Show that you are faithfully and lovingly going about bringing people to Christ. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Does your life show that you are faithfully and lovingly teaching people to observe all that Christ has commanded you? Does it show that you are faithfully and lovingly warning people of their sins and disciplining those who are caught up in sin? For this is the call of this passage. The call is for spiritual fatherhood, a life worth following. Is your life worth following because you are following after Jesus? Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that tonight you would give us clean hands and that you would give us a pure heart. God, may we not lift our souls to another. May our eyes not be fixed on the building of our little kingdoms, forgetting that we have been called to seek your kingdom first above all other things. God, may we go back to that noble task of making disciples of all the nations. May you produce from us spiritual fathers who will lead souls to Christ, who will warn souls of sin, who will model Christ to souls, and who will discipline those who are caught in sin. God, forgive us for the pride that so easily fills our souls. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we trust in our words, when we trust in ourselves, or when we're just caught up in ourselves. Help us, Father, to go back to doing that which you have called us to. So, Lord, tonight I pray that you would teach us your ways that we may follow them. We pray that you would show us your truth, that we may live by them to the, glo- to the glory of your wonderful name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.